Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Again, welcome to North Main Street Church of God. Those of you who are here with us and those of you watching online or from home or listening as you're driving in your car on our podcast. So we welcome you this morning. We start a new series today about the kindest gesture the world has ever known. As we come into this season of Advent, as we've lit our candles in remembrance of the importance of why we do what we do here and why we continue to do what we do some 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, we come into this place and this space of Advent with the remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. I came across this illustration, I think it's fitting, and I believe I used it a few years ago, so if you remember it from then, don't spoil it for anybody else next to you, okay? In the fall of the year, during an ice storm, a bridge collapsed. Cars continued to travel toward the bridge, and they plunged into the icy river below. One man, however, went over, climbed out of a car, and then he stood on the highway trying to stop others from plunging over the bridge. But car after car drove on by him, unaware of the danger ahead, plowing on their horn, cursing him as they went by. He would shout, the bridge is out, the bridge is out, but no one would stop as they continued to fly on past. Finally, He took off his jacket. He stood in the middle of the highway and refused to move, waving his jacket like a flag. One angry driver shouted, what do you think you're doing? Get out of the road. And he said to him, the bridge is out. The driver turned his car sideways in the middle of the road. It was only then that they were able to stop anybody else from imminent destruction. Why do I tell you that story? Because many of us, like the other drivers, have heard the clarion sound of our culture groaning. Have you not? The bridge is out in our culture, in our world. It's been out for a long time. But there is a Savior who stands waving the banner of salvation, (laughs) saying, listen, I don't want you to go careening over the edge. I love you, I care for you, and if you need to hit me, then go ahead and hit me and plow over me. And quite honestly, when the time came, that's what happened. The world plowed over him, but he willingly laid his life down for that to happen. And because he did, the greatest gesture of kindness, the greatest gift the world has ever known came through that one baby who was laid in a manger in the small town of Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. There's a typo in your notes. I am remiss if I don't tell you that. He didn't travel from Nazareth to Jerusalem. It's to Bethlehem. Fix that in your notes, all right? We're going to Matthew's account of the advent or the birth of Christ today. And we're going to look specifically at Joseph's story in the mix of all of the birth narrative. 
But specifically, not only are we going to look at Matthew's account, we oftentimes like to skip over genealogies. Do you know the Bible is full of genealogies and lineages and this beget, this person beget that person, beget that person, beget that person? We're going to look at Matthew's genealogy. Pretty much a big, about half of the first chapter of Matthew is a genealogical record. <clears throat> but there are some significant things to point out as we look at that today. But before we get to the lineage, let's do jump forward to verse 18 of chapter 1 and look at Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. He writes, this is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, or betrothed, depending on your translation of scripture. Betrothal is a better translation. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was betrothed, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement or the betrothal quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as, as the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Here's a key point this morning. God sent Jesus to bring salvation from sin. He sent Jesus into the world to save his people from sin. And who are his people? Well, let's take a look at the genealogical record. If we look at the genealogical record, I'm only going to pull out certain pieces of this. Read the whole thing for yourself. Don't worry about correct pronunciation. <laughs> Most of the time, uh, we mess those things up. But specifically, look at Matthew 1, verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, an Aramean. Perez was the father of Hezron. Now, if we jump down to verse 5, Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, a Canaanite. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, a Moabite. Now, I'm adding the nationalities that are not in the lineage, and it's for a purpose. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And King David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, more than likely a Hittite, because her husband Uriah was a Hittite. Now, why do I tell you all that? Why is this significant? Because women's names were never allowed in genealogical records. Women were inconsequential to the record of history for the most part, in a male-dominated society, and 
almost every culture across the globe. Specifically in the Jewish culture, you would not put women's names in a genealogical record. Why? Because they did not hold as much weight. They were not often allowed to be leaders or hold high positions or offices. So the genealogical record would stay on the father's side or the male side of the family. Why then does Matthew, a good Jew, put women in the historical record? Especially these women. These women were not Jewish. What does it tell you about Jesus' lineage? I mean, do we see something significant here? According to the biblical scholar who passed away a few years ago by the name of Kenneth Bailey, he says, Matthew may have included women in Jesus' genealogy as a sign of the new kingdom of God. There was an expectation of the kingdom of God that was to come. When, when the Old Testament Jews and the prophets were awaiting a king, were awaiting a Messiah through the prophets who said he would come from the line of David, they were expecting a military, mighty, powerful, get the armies together person. They weren't expecting a baby born in a small town called Bethlehem. Now, yeah, they knew the prophets, and they knew what the prophets said. Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem, But surely, it wouldn't be a little baby in in a stable. In a stable where animals would be born, or would be. Have you ever been into a barn before? Where animals are kept. I grew up in central Kentucky, many of you know that. There are horse barns and horse farms everywhere. I used to step into horse barns, and they don't smell the greatest. No matter how pretty they are they still don't smell the greatest. They don't put the plug-ins in each of the stalls. You just, you get the smell that you get. Now, he's born in this space where animals are, which would have been connected to a home. And there would have either been a wooden trough hewn out of one big log, but they didn't have big trees there. More than likely, it was carved out of stone. This manger was a feeding trough, a water basin. That's where Jesus would have been laid. Because, quite honestly, Bethlehem was a packed place. King the, uh, Caesar had demanded that a census be taken. And so people had to travel back to the home of their origin, where their families were. And so Joseph, being in the line of David... Had to go back to Bethlehem. He lives in the region of Galilee, further north, close to the Sea of Galilee. Bethlehem is southern Israel. So they made this trek down there. Mary, fully pregnant at this time. If Matthew wanted to include Jews and Gentiles in his genealogy, how could he do so? How, how could he do so? Think about this. You would never include pagan individuals in your genealogy if you were a good Jew. So not only were there women, but these women were not Jewish. 
It's like adding insult to injury, showing what Jesus' ancestors were. Do you catch this? Good Jews never added people to the genealogical record that would make you look bad. But you have these ladies who are adulterers, who are tricksters, if you will, prostitutes. The only good one among the bunch there is Ruth, and there's a book named after her in the Old Testament, but they were told to never intermarry. The Jews were never to intermarry with any of the other nations around them. When, who was Ruth? She's a Moabite, not an Israelite. So this isn't boding well for the lineage of Jesus. So why then does Matthew put it in there? Among the women selected, Tamar struggled for justice and was called righteous, and yet she slept with her father-in-law. Look it up in the book of Genesis. Bathsheba committed adultery and was surely not innocent. Sure, you have a powerful king and you need to do what he said, but she still had a choice in the matter. She's not completely innocent. Ruth, again, a saint throughout the book that bears her name, but still a pagan or from a pagan lineage. And what about Mary, Jesus' mother? Who was she of significance? We listened to a video this morning in the class that I taught before service, and the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, oh, favored woman. We will look at her story throughout this series. But she was a favored woman. What made her more favored than any other woman? She was more than likely a 14-year-old girl, which is about the time that girls would be betrothed to another in a prearranged marriage by the two families. What made her any more favored? What made her more significant than any other girl across the face of the globe? Or let's just narrow it down to any other Jewish female. What made her significant? I mean, you would think if God was going to come, he would come in royal pomp and circumstance to somebody of significance that the rest of the world would know. So that the clarion call would go out, hey, a king is coming, and he's coming in this way through this young lady who we all know. But it didn't happen that way. You see, the way God moves and works doesn't align with our preconceived notions. Would you agree with that? Have you ever prayed, God, if you truly are real, then do this. God is not some pawn on a chessboard that we can move wherever we want. But God is good, he is holy, he is righteous, and above all, he is love. In his ways, though higher than ours, and his thoughts, though broader and deeper than our thoughts could ever be, is so significantly good that he is trustworthy to accomplish more than we could ever ask or imagine. And yet, we still fight against him in many different ways. You see, Joseph and Mary had a choice. 
We think because we romanticize the 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 story of the birth of Christ is so commercialized today that we miss the nuanced significance of really what's happening in the story because we, we, we take, we love this time of year, but, but do we love it for the right reasons? I love it. I love the music, the sounds, the lights. I love every aspect of it. But I have to ask myself, do I also love it for the right reasons? Because the greatest gift the world has ever known came in a way that no one would have ever expected. Joseph has a lineage that is not perfect. How many of you have a lineage that is not perfect? Okay. How many of you have the crazy aunts and uncles or grandpa's grandpa, grandma? How many of you I mean, nowadays we have Ancestry.com, we got 23andMe, do you know what I'm talking about? You can actually dig up and find a ton of information about your family lineage. How many of you have parts of your family lineage you're like, oh, let's just kind of cover that one up. I want you to see these people, right? I do. And maybe it's your immediate family, maybe it's not some ancestor, maybe it's somebody sitting next to you right now. Don't elbow anybody, all right? Don't do it. Like, yeah, you're the crazy uncle, and, or you're the crazy aunt. You see, one of the cool things about the lineage is that all four of these women demonstrate an intelligence, a boldness, and a courage in spite of their own history. You see, what made them significant isn't the, what would be deemed the failures in their lives. They rose above that to do something of significance. Tamar was promised by her father-in-law Judah that she would marry the final son, as was per the tradition. And guess what? Judah's like, no, 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 no. When his son came of age, Tamar, a widow already, Judah didn't follow through on his deal. He was the unrighteous one in the story. Tamar did something she probably shouldn't have done, and yet it was counted as righteousness to her because she did something that wouldn't have been the normal way to do it, and yet God used it and worked through it because her motives were pure and honest and true. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Look at the story, understand the context, and you can see the hand of God through this woman and her actions. What about Rahab? Do you remember finally the Israelites were allowed to go into the promised land? They'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. A generation had died off that were unfaithful whenever God had led them to the promised land 40 years prior. And so now this new generation, God is saying, okay, the time has come. Moses is in the wilderness, unable to go into the promised land because of a thing he did in the wilderness. Read it for yourself. But now Joshua, the new leader of the Israelites, comes through the Jordan from the eastern side of the area into the promised land. 
And these millions, men, women, and children of Israelites enter the promised land. One of the cities they go to is Jericho. Jericho was known as a brutal and malicious people. Children sacrifice, Baal worship, horrible atrocities through this pagan nation. And yet they were a mighty people with a mighty city. Rahab is in that city. She's a prostitute. People know her in many different ways. And they're rarely good. Spies are sent in to Jericho to see what they're looking at, the Israelites. And when the spies are found out, Rahab hides them in her apartment inside the city wall. And she says, we know who you are. Everybody in the city knows all about you Israelites, and we are scared to death. Because we know God is on your side. Well, which God is she talking about? She's a pagan worshiper of many different gods. But see, they've heard of the stories of these Israelites by the millions in the wilderness and how God you know, provided for them, how their clothes didn't wear out, how there was water and streams from rocks, manna from heaven. They, these, these people in Jericho have heard the stories, the reputation of the Israelites and the Israelites' God precedes them. And now the spies are in there and she's taken them in to give them safe passage. And she says, listen, here's the deal. We know your God's going to take us over. Could you remember me and my family? Could, could you just protect us? And because of her faith and her willingness to let the spies go, scarlet, scarlet cloth was the means for her salvation. And how ironic that many, many years later, the blood, the scarlet blood that ran down from the cross would be the means to salvation for everyone else. The second thing we notice is that Joseph was a righteous and compassionate man. Joseph, do you know in the Jewish culture, if, if anyone committed adultery, male or female, the tradition, according to the Jewish law, was stoning was to happen. And I told the class this this morning. Stoning would have happened from the largest rock you could pick up, okay? But before the rocks were thrown, you would technically... If, and there are in that region, there are cliffs, hillsides, there, there are places you could go. It's not plain land. They have, do have plains there, but, but there's hills and cliffs. And so traditionally, to be stoned, you would be carried out to the edge of town to wherever the closest cliff was, and you would be thrown off the cliff. But as was tradition, once you are thrown down, have you ever heard of that term in the Bible? Once you were thrown down, then they would take the stones and heap them on you from the top of the cliff. That was stoning. Now, if there was no cliff, they would just beat you down and throw the stones on you. But typically, if there was a nearby cliff, they would do that. And if the fall didn't kill you, the stones would. Now, flash forward to the time of Jesus. Unlike our culture today, there are teen pregnancies all the time in our culture. And we also have infant sacrifice, dare I say it. 
Nothing has changed in hundreds, if not thousands of years. We just put a term on it to make it sanitized or medical. But in those, in those days, these were a holy people, a righteous people. Did they always get it right? No. We could point to all their weaknesses and failures. But one of the things we do know is that they were strict to the law most of the time. And if a young woman came up pregnant and there was no father, guess what? Though they were under the Roman government, they would still break the laws of the Roman government and go kill their own people if they were in an obscure town somewhere. Why? Because the Romans who were in power and authority during the time of Jesus' birth were the only ones that could put forward an a edict to, um, to kill somebody. So here's this young woman, betrothed to Joseph. They technically are not allowed to consummate the act of marriage through sexual intercourse until the actual marriage ceremony. If they did that before, it was not only frowned upon, but could, if you found an extreme circumstance, they could have been killed by their own people. But now to carry that further, Joseph's not the father. These two are betrothed. It's as if they're already, the betrothal ceremony is not an engagement that can be broken very easily. In order for Joseph to do what he needed to to get himself out of the betrothal, he would actually have to give her a certificate of divorce. We don't have to do that with engagements, right? This is why this is significant. The betrothal ceremony was a binding ceremony just as if they got married in an official manner. And the betrothal would last from nine months to a year, sometimes over a year. And the reason for that was that the male was to go back home and prepare a place for his bride. What was he doing? He was going home to build on to the family edifice, a place or a home. Sound familiar? John chapter 14, Jesus is sitting around the Passover table with his disciples having just celebrated what we call the Last Supper, giving new meaning to the bread and the cup. And then he begins to talk to them. The night he would be arrested to be led away and crucified, he begins to talk to them and saying, listen, I'm not going to be here much longer. I'm going to die. But I'm going to go prepare a place for you so that you can be with me where I am. And when I have prepared it, I will come and take you to be with me where I am. Do you remember Philip's response, one of the disciples? Well, just tell us where you're going. Show us the way so that we will know how to get there. And he says, Philip, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What is Jesus saying about himself? He is the way to salvation. He is the only way to heaven through the Father. Now, that sounds very exclusive in our very inclusive society, but this is one of the cool, well, not cool things, but one of the important things to understand about Christianity is it's founded on Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And to compromise that is to compromise everything. And to compromise everything ultimately leads to destruction. But here's the Here's the thing, and I've said this over and over again. The thing about truth is it is exclusive. Truth cannot also be false. Because if it is, it's not truth. 
And so if Jesus is the truth, then for him to say that he is the way, the truth, and the life means that that is the only way. I said this over and over again here. I said it at our youth convention this past few weeks. The one thing that shaped and changed my life happened in college studying for the ministry in Florida. As I was wrestling, why God, if you are all powerful, can there not be multiple ways to heaven? I mean, you're all powerful. You can make anything happen that you want to happen in any way, form, or fashion. Unless you can't. And then I started asking myself this question, are there things that God cannot do? Well, no, that can't be right because I've been raised in the church. God can do anything. But can he? Now, it sounds like I'm mocking the sovereignty of God, but I'm not. Hang in there with me. Don't close me off yet. Can God sin? No. And the reason would be if God could sin, then he would not be God, nor would he be perfect. The idea, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it, is what we call a contradiction. And what is a contradiction? Anybody? See, the reality of God is that he is so good and so perfect, he cannot do something contrary to his own character, or he would not be God. So then I had to ask this question. When it came to John 14, if God is telling the truth through Jesus Christ, then he's thought of every conceivable way possible. But this is the only way. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever been trying to solve a problem? And you've looked and you've, you've looked at it again this way and you've done this and you realize, okay, the only way to fix this is this way. Have you ever come to that conclusion on any situation? That the right thing to do, the only way through this is to do this. There is no plan B, there is no plan C, this is the only way. Have you ever come to that conclusion? Now imagine that on a more divine and grand scale with a God who is perfect and is able to do everything conceivable within his power and authority and abilities to do, who has looked at every, every possibility and realized there is no other way. This is it. Would it be mean for a God to, to say there's more ways when there isn't? See, that is deception. And there is only one who is the deceiver and the one that leads to confusion. See, Jesus and God do not like to confuse. They open the pathway. They clear away. They, they show clearly the answers to situations. This is why the religious leader of Jesus' day, after he grew up into a man and started his ministry, did not like him because he wasn't playing by their rules, but they weren't playing by God's rules either. Jesus actually said, I'm going to fulfill the law perfectly in a way that you guys never can or could. And so he goes back 
to the very root and the idea behind the law, and he fulfills it perfectly. Not man's law that the religious leaders had tacked on. Have you ever been to a church that likes to tack on extra rules? I have. That's why at North Main, we try to stay as strict and as close to scriptural preference and a scriptural teaching as possible. Do we know everything about everything? No. But one of the things we do know is that if it's not in the scripture, we don't make a doctrine out of it. And the reason we don't make a doctrine out of it is because you can't live by it. And if truly the Bible is God's word, and we do believe that through Jesus that word became flesh and dwelt among us, then we have to stay strict to who he is and what he asks. When we start tacking on more rules or adding more things to say, well, it doesn't really mean that, it means this, then we're in some deep water that we're going to drown in if we're not careful. Jesus, or Joseph, excuse me, was a righteous and compassionate man. And here's one of the cool things about him, is he had every right to throw Mary under the bus. Here's another thing I know. Typically, they may have known each other. Most of the, the scripted movies that we see about Mary and Joseph is that they kind of knew each other. And it's possible. Nazareth wasn't a huge town, but it was bigger than most. But oftentimes when families would work out a, a deal to marry their children, it was an arranged marriage. This is the way it is in Eastern cultures today some Eastern cultures. And so you don't always know who you're marrying, male or, if you're the male or if you're the female. You don't know who you're going to be paired up with. It depends on oftentimes the parents. So let's think of it this way. Let's, let's think of it, if Mary, if Mary and Joseph were betrothed and they didn't really know each other, they may have been acquaintances, but they didn't know each other the way we do on the dating scene today in our culture. Joseph didn't have too much skin in the game, so to speak. I mean, she could have been, she may have been an all-around nice girl after they got betrothed and he met her and he met her family. But they didn't potentially have time to really make that connection. And so now Mary's pregnant. It's not his kid. He knows that. But he's a righteous and compassionate man. He wouldn't have gotten her pregnant to begin with because he plays by the rules, so to speak. He could have let her have it. He could have made a mockery of her because he, he, did, he may have not wanted to risk his own reputation. Right? Oh, it's, how many of us do that, right? It's not my fault. And we start to point fingers. Think, go back to Genesis 3. Do you remember Eve partakes of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which she was not to partake of because she was deceived by the serpent? She ate it, and then she gave some to her husband, who says he was right there. How stupid can you be? Oh, yeah, I'll eat that. So, and so he eats it, and then God comes onto the scene in the garden. In Genesis 3, he's looking for the man and the woman. But they've hidden themselves among the shrubbery of the of the garden, sorry. What happens? Well, they have now clothed themselves 
with leaves from the garden. And they reveal themselves to God. (laughs) And what do we find out? They're ashamed. They've hidden. Why were you ashamed? Well, we saw that we were naked. Who told you you were naked? And then the blame game happens. What's, who's the first one to speak up? Adam. It's the woman you gave me. And then Eve. Well, it was the serpent who deceived me. See, we do that today. So Joseph had every right. He could have, he could have said, it's her fault. He could have legitimately said that. And he could have walked away. And it says before the angel even presented himself to her, before he even knew the miraculous nature of the birth that was about to happen through Mary, he's like, I'm not going to do that. I'll divorce her privately. She may be punished less if I do it that way. I may risk my reputation by not calling her out, but that's okay. I don't want her to be hurt or harmed any more than she already is going to be, so I'll do this quietly. And I can imagine the pain of having a planned future that you think is going to be a certain way. How many of you, when you started off in your relationships, thought it was going to play out and be a certain way, and then it never plays out the way you think it's going to? Joseph had dreams of a future with Mary. He was going to be this way, and I'll build this house, and we'll live this way, and when I make enough money and we have all of these kids, it's just going to be great. But Joseph, I've got other plans for you. And so an angel comes, and he speaks to Joseph, and he says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. You see, the child that she's carrying, though not your own, is destined to bring salvation to the world, and he will be called Jesus. You are to name him Jesus. What a great privilege. So you see, Joseph had been raised from a little boy, about four or five years old, in the local synagogue. The local synagogue was a Jewish training center. That's where they went to school. They would have been raised as young men and even young women in the local synagogue to learn not only reading and writing and all of the other stuff, but they would have been trained in the Jewish ways and religion. They would have been trained that a Messiah was coming generation after generation after generation after generation for hundreds of years Thousands of years, a Messiah will come and he will set the record straight. He will restore the Israelites to their proper place within human society through the line of King David and this king will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords and of his government there will be no end. What do we do with that? Joseph knew that. And now Joseph is a key character. The angel shows him the part he is to play. Now can you imagine the huge paradigm shift? Joseph, don't be afraid to take her as your wife because the one she's carrying is the one you guys have waited on forever. 
The part I call for you to play is not insignificant, but it is risky. It will cost you possibly everything. Are you willing to play the part? Are you willing to be in my grand story? Because you have a choice in the matter. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. Join me in this story. Be with me in this. And no, it's not like you had hoped, nor had you planned, but I promise you it will be greater than anything you can imagine. Yes, it will come with some suffering and some pain, but I promise you it will not be in vain. And at the end of that conversation, Joseph was obedient to God even when the odds were stacked against him. Can I ask you a question, as I've often asked myself, when God calls, his desire is for us to step into what he's called us to. Do you know the one thing he's called everybody to? Salvation through Jesus Christ. We quote this passage often, even if you don't, are not a churchgoer by tradition, or maybe you've been burned by the church, and you're like, I'll never go back, and I'm just here one time. <laughs> all right, I don't know if that's you. We all know this verse, John 3, 16. You probably can quote it, even if you're not a biblical scholar. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What is the perishing conversation? It's not just a physical death. See, this idea of perishing is an eternal separation and death apart from God, meaning hell. And yes, we are a church that talks about hell. I am not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I do get passionate and excited about what I read, but I'm not a gasper. We used to, in Kentucky, we used to have these guys called gaspers that would come through, and they'd gasp in between every phrase and every word, and I focus more on the gasps than the message. I'm not a gasper, but I do believe in the Word of God. And the one thing I know is that there is a pathway that leads to heaven, and there is a pathway that leads to hell. Jesus said in Matthew 7, in the great sermon on the mount that he gave, that there is a wide way and there's a narrow way. And we don't like that. We want the wide way to be easy to heaven. We want the narrow way to be the hard route to hell, but it's opposite. And the reason it's opposite is because to be a believer in Christ is counter-cultural. It's counter what the world has to offer. So the world in which we live, which is broken and fallen, obviously has a wider way because we can see, feel, hear, taste, touch. We can see all, all of our senses are impacted by the world in which we live. But in order to become a believer in Christ, it requires you to break your ties with the world, to not live as one of the world. And I've said this in the past few sermons. It, it is like you are now, you, you've been living in an upside down world, but you have been turned right side up when you receive Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. And so that when you become a believer in Christ and you are right side up in an upside down world, everything looks off. 
because you've been given new eyes to see, new ears to hear, and you could see the contradiction in the way the world lives from the way that God desires for us to live. But now that I've received Christ and I've started in this life called salvation, or this walk in relationship with Jesus Christ called salvation, I must now continue to work out that salvation in an upside down world with fear and trembling because I know the tendency is to be drawn back. The weight and the heaviness of the world is constantly pulling against me to pull me down and flip me upside down. How many of you live in a world like that? Well, you're trying to do the right things, trying to be a good person. Let me tell you something, you can't do it on your own. You see, this is what Joseph knew. Once he was given clarity of what the calling of God was on his life, he had a choice to make. Do I continue to do what I plan to do? Dismiss her and find another woman and live the life that I've always wanted? Or do I take Mary as my wife and live the life I'd never planned for but is the best route for me? Because it's going to require me giving up some dreams. It's going to require me giving up some of the things that I've always wanted or desired. It's going to require me to leave everything. I may be rejected by my family for taking a woman who's pregnant with a child that's not my own. I'm sure the society will reject me. How am I going to find work? You know what? God will work those things out. What's important is that I follow him in complete surrender and I step into whatever he has. So Joseph was willing and he stepped into that through obedience. You see, in Mary's story, she says, after the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, you will conceive a child by the power of the Holy Spirit and he will save people from their sins. Same situation. Do you know what she says? I am the Lord's servant. I said this this morning in my class as well. Do you know the word for servant is doulos? And you know what doulos actually means? Slave. We like to soften it, make it sound a lot better. It's servant. We have servant quarters. We get three square meals a day, blah, blah, blah. I'm the Lord's slave. We don't like to use that word in our culture because slave has very serious connotations. When Mary says, I am the Lord's doulas, she is saying, I will do whatever you want. Whenever you want, however you want, I will be completely obedient from this point forward to do whatever you've called me to do, no matter how stupid it looks to the rest of the world. Because I desire you more than I desire this. Joseph had to come to that same conclusion. He was obedient to step into something that was going to change his world forever and not always in a good way but rather for God's way. I guess that's the question I have for you today as our worship team comes forward to close us out. 
I don't know, you may have the most successful life you've ever had. And yes, this is a salvation message. You would expect it to be that whenever the title is Salvation from Sin. And it's not a shameless plug, it's not a manipulation tactic, but I want to tell you before you leave this space in this place today that there is a God, that he is good and he is perfect, that he stepped out of eternity. You know the title that Joseph was given by the angel reflecting on Isaiah's passage in the Old Testament was he will be called Emmanuel. Now, they don't leave anything to question there because Isaiah says, God with us. Do you know what Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament is telling his listeners? The one who is coming, the great Messiah, he will be Emmanuel. He actually will be God with us. Do you know what Paul finds out and writes about in Philippians chapter 2? He basically expounds on Isaiah's passage. What is God with us? What, who is Jesus? Jesus, though being God himself, did not consider equality with God as something to cling to, but instead emptied himself in order to take on human flesh. And when he did that, he do-lost himself. He enslaved himself into this physical body that can wither and fade, feel pain, and can die. You see, God took a risk on all of us when he became a baby. Helpless, needing to be fed and clothed by his mother. He took a risk growing up through the rough and tumble teenage years. He took a risk becoming a young man following in his earthly father's footsteps as a carpenter and then in his heavenly father's footsteps as Messiah and Savior. He took a risk knowing that there were many that hated him and they were people in powerful positions that could hold sway over crowds. I guess the question I have is, if he can take a risk on all of us that way, can we not take a risk on him? Some of you have taken risks by going to church. Some of you have been burnt by the church. Some of you have been burnt by your life experiences, and you've cursed God because you said, truly, God, if you exist, this wouldn't have happened, or you would have saved me from that, or you would have not let this person die, or you would have fill in the blank. But here's one of the things I know, following God, surrendering your life to him, it does not mean everything is going to go your way, but it means that he will provide a way through it. You remember the psalmist, quote him often, David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, oh, they comfort me. Yes, you are my protector, you are my provider, and you are with me. But oh, to have the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, who are standing in the face of the presence of evil himself, Nebuchadnezzar, because they won't bow down to the idol he has built for them to worship. 
the whole nation has, but they haven't. And so he calls them in front of him, and he says, is this true? And they said, yes. And so he stokes the fire of the furnace where they, they are to be burned alive, and he questions and gives them one more chance. And they said, we believe our God is able to rescue us from the flames, but even if he doesn't, we will still not bow down and worship your idol." We need that even if he doesn't attitude in life. And that can only come through salvation in Jesus Christ. If he wasn't spared the cross, what makes us think we will be spared suffering? This prosperity theology that's out there is a false teaching. And I know there are those that buy into it and probably don't like for me to say that. But we were never promised an easy way when we surrender our lives to Christ. Again, we are living right side up in an upside down world when we surrender our lives to Christ. It's not going to be easy, but it will be good. Because eternal life is on the line. An unknown author wrote this. He said, Longfellow could take a sheet of paper and write a poem on it and make it worth $60,000 back in his day. That's what we call talent. Rockefeller could sign a piece of paper and make it worth millions of dollars in his day. That's what we call capital. A seamstress can take material worth $5 and make it into clothing worth $50, $100, $200 or more. That's called skill. A merchant can buy an article for 80 cents, put it on his counter and sell it for a dollar, two dollars, fifteen dollars. That's called business. But God can take a worthless, sinful life, wash it, cleanse it, put his Holy Spirit within it, and make it a blessing to all humanity. That's what we call salvation. And salvation is available for all who choose to accept it. And so here's what we know. What is salvation? How many hoops do I have to jump through? What does that look like? Is it about a list of rules of do's and don'ts? I'm glad that we have answers. Straight from the Word of God, Paul writes in Romans 10, verses 9 through 13, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Wait a minute. <clears throat> There's got to be more to it than that, Brandon. <laughs> no. Because he goes on to say, For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you're saved. As the Scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew or Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. <clears throat> No strings attached. That's it. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, I believe that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. I confess all my sins to you, and I ask you to receive me into your kingdom. <clears throat> it is a heart and a mouth. It's about not being ashamed to confess him as Lord, and it's about believing in here. Oh, I can tell you I believe, but be far from God in here. Are you willing to confess him with your lips and to believe him in your heart so that you can be with him for an eternity? 
It's going to be rough at times, but I promise you it's good. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And as you pray, don't pray this. You can pray it. God hears your thoughts. (laughs) You don't have to pray it out loud. There are a lot of people that tell you a lot of different things. If it doesn't square with God's word, be skeptical. Because God God is the one who sees on the heart, not the outward appearance. I can fool everybody else in here, but I cannot fool God. So I'm going to pray this prayer, and I pray that you would pray it with me. But don't pray it if you don't mean it. And it's a prayer of salvation, and it's not a prayer that will get you into heaven just because you speak it in some ritualistic manner. It is one you have to truly own. And when you own it, you need to live it out on a regular basis. Not perfectly, but consistently. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you. And I ask that you would come into my life and wash me clean. Forgive me of all the sins I've ever committed and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I do believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that nobody could come to him except, or nobody could come to you except through him. I believe in my heart and I now confess it with my lips. My desire is to be a child of God. Welcome me into your kingdom this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.